Today, we're going to be in the book of Acts again, and uh, I'm going to try to get you guys through 52 verses in less than 52 minutes. So how does that sound? Um, We're just uh, continuing on our journey through the book of Acts, uh, taking it a chapter at a week, uh, a chapter a week, watching how the gospel spreads. And what we're going to see today very clearly, I think, is that behind this ministry, behind the spread of the gospel, uh, is the Holy Spirit working, uh, directing, guiding. In this case, we're going to see the Holy Spirit setting aside the missionaries, sending them out and empowering them. And then we'll get to see what that mission's work is. Uh, chapter 13 describes for us what is known as the first missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. And so it's starting to get exciting now. Uh, I do want to remind you guys that when we approach the word, uh, we have an unspoken contract, but it's really spoken because I'm about to tell you it. We have a spoken now contract, and that is this, that I will do my best to express what's in the word to you. Uh, But you have a responsibility to be good hearers of the word, which means you are going to ask yourself, what does God have for me in this passage? What does God have for me in this passage? And then what am I going to do about it so that we can respond uh, in kind to the things we see in Scripture? Now, because this chapter is filled with a bunch of city names, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on where those things are as we go through it. I'm just going to show you a map right here at the beginning. And so if you're looking at this map here, you'll see over here Antioch in chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. That's where they're going to be ministering. That's where they're going to start out their missionary journey. They'll be sent out. Uh, They'll travel through Seleucia and Salamis and all the way over here to Paphos, which will be chapter 13, verses 4 through 13. And then from Cyprus, they'll go up north. And then you'll see up there as they'll go through Perga and all these different places. But they're going to spend a lot of time today in Antioch, Pisidia, which I know sounds very confusing because they started in Antioch, but there's a different Antioch. That's because there was a guy by the name of Seleucus who loved his daddy. And so he named his son Antioch after his daddy, and he named 15 cities Antioch after his daddy. And it makes it very, very confusing when you're going through history and through the scriptures to figure out which one you're in. But thankfully, in here, Luke tells us the second one is Antioch Pisidia. So we can actually get that idea uh, as we follow all of those places up. And I'll just leave that up for a little bit uh, as we begin to read this here. But just I want you to kind of see what's going on. There's a process as they're moving through those different cities to proclaim the gospel. All right. Uh, Another thing I want to give you uh, here before we get into the scripture is this. Uh, I want to give you a time frame. So this is happening about 48 AD, which may not mean a whole lot to you. uh, But to put it in perspective, the the last chapter, Herod had died at the end of chapter 12. That happened in about 44 AD. And we heard of Antioch in chapter 11 when Barnabas and Saul began ministering in the city of Antioch in 44 AD or 43 AD. So what you're seeing now from chapter 11 to chapter 12 is one year, but from chapter 12 to chapter 13 is four years. So a total of five years, Paul and Barnabas seemingly have been ministering in the city of Antioch, uh, the Antioch that's in Syria, not the Antioch that's up in the regions of Galatia. So uh, here we go. Verse one. Now, There were at Antioch in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius and Cyrene and Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. 
Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So seeing being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John as their helper. So here we go. We're getting a lot of names. We're going to get a lot of names of cities, a lot of names of people. Uh, first, they're in the city of Antioch. And uh, the church there had within it people who were prophets, people who were teachers. Uh, I like how they make that designation, that difference there, uh, because today some people say, well, teachers and prophets are the same thing, but that's not entirely true scripturally, although I think there's a lot of overlap. I think there are a number of pastors who preach with more of a prophetic voice and many pastors who preach more like teachers or professors or something like that. And I feel like I'm more on that teacher side than the prophetic side, but you can decide that for yourselves. But these groups of teachers and prophets were, as it says in this passage, ministering to the Lord and fasting which for me is a fascinating turn of phrase there. And your translation might have a different word there for ministering to the Lord. It may say that they were serving the Lord or that they were worshiping the Lord, depending on which translation you use. Uh, The Greek behind this is where we get our modern word liturgy, but it's just kind of an interesting way of looking at it. Uh, Oftentimes we think of going and gathering at church to be ministered to, But they saw it as we're going to church to minister to the Lord, to to serve him, to worship him. You can kind of see the perspective change there. Again, oftentimes we come to see what we can receive, but they were going in order to give back to the God who saved them. Now, it doesn't give us a very specific pattern for how they worshiped here, other than at this point they were also fasting, something that people will do oftentimes when they're seeking out wisdom from God. And there's a couple of different reasons for fasting in Scripture, but contextually here it feels like they were already pursuing what is it that God would have for us as a church to do. And so they begin to fast about these things, and they're ministering. And kind of the way I envision this, if they're ministering to the Lord while they're fasting, I envision it part prayer part Bible teaching, part prophetic utterance. Uh, I imagine there might have been some singing, although it's, it's not always clear early in the New Testament that there was a lot of singing going on. What we do now is a little bit of a, a modern take on that. But uh, this idea that they have here is that they are directing everything towards God. And so I imagine it kind of being like this, that uh, they get together and they begin to pray. And one of the teachers in the room begins to talk about the character of God and how wonderful he is and what amazing things. So they just kind of work through passages of scripture that talk about that. And then one of the prophets speak up and say, yes, the royalty of God reminds me of the, of the purple nature and just gets into this prophetic way of speaking. And it just kind of all kind of this sharing moment while they're fasting, they're seeking, they're pursuing God in some way. And then in the middle of that ministry, somehow, probably, I'm guessing through the prophets, the Holy Spirit speaks to them and says, we're going to set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now, what's fascinating about this is it doesn't say the Holy Spirit said, I need them to go to this city, this city, this city, this city. It could have been, but that's not included here, and so we're only kind of guessing, I suppose. But it seems to me what the Holy Spirit did is said, set apart for me Saul and Barnabas for the work that they've been called to, 
but then he, he let them do the work. And probably, if I were guessing, they've been hanging out in Antioch for about five years, and the Holy Spirit says, I called you guys as missionaries, not as pastors. It's time for you to go. He needs to send them out. He needs to send them out. And so that's how they're going to go. They're actually going to be sent out as they have been called to do so by the Holy Spirit. And that's where they're going to begin to, to move into this ministry. So all of those at the church there then surround them. They'd been fasting and they'd lay their hands on them and they pray for them and they send them out. Important for us to see in this though, that the one who is directing the ministry is the Holy Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit who is God. This isn't some wild hair that, that Paul just thought to himself, you know what I'm going to do? I think I'm just going to go all over the countryside and tell people about Jesus. It wasn't his plan. It wasn't his purpose. The spread of the gospel that we're seeing in the book of Acts was directed by the Holy Spirit. And we have a little bit of a modern difficulty here where we struggle to tell the difference from our will and God's will a little bit. I, I think for many of us, uh, we get a good idea in our head and once we've decided it's a good idea, we go ahead and just stamp it and say, this is what the Holy Spirit said. Now, we have to be cautious to be able to know the difference between a good idea and a God idea. And we have to do that work. And, and seeing how they did this work here where they, they spent this time fasting and seeking God and then they got the idea. Not, I've got an idea, I'm going to seek God. You see how that's backwards. No, they sought God through fasting and prayer and ministering to Him, and then it was God who brought them the idea. Now, that's going to become important when you start to look at the ministry life of the Apostle Paul, because this guy's going to start going to these various towns and cities. They're going to arrest him. They're going to beat the snot out of him. In one city, they're going to, they think, kill him, and he's going to get up and walk back into the town after they thought they killed him. It's going to be hard to continue on in this mission if it was just a good idea that you had. Because when you're getting beat up and thrown in jail and put half to death, it no longer feels like a good idea, right? But no, when you know that you have been set apart by the Holy Spirit, when you've been called by Him, when you've been sent out by Him, you can put up with a, a lot you can put up with a lot. I think that's why it was important as well that the church laid their hands on them. That there was an agreement. That everybody felt like this was God's will for them. I've seen it go both ways, by the way. I've seen times where uh, we have uh, had people that we have laid hands on and they've been able to suffer through the difficulties. When we're all in agreement... I've also seen people sent out that we thought shouldn't go and we refused to lay hands on them. And I've watched as they've struggled and struggled and struggled. And I wonder if it was because they were doing their plan and their agenda and not God's plan and God's agenda. So anyway, they begin this journey. They're going to bring with them a young man by the name of John as a helper. We're going to see John is short for this trip. He's not going to be on it for very long because in verse 13, John is going to abandon them or desert them. That's how Paul's going to describe it. In, ver in chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas are going to get in a fight about John. Uh, John is not totally useless, though. This is John Mark, who's going to write the gospel of Mark. And then at the end of the life of the apostle Paul, Paul's going to say, 
Could you bring John to me because he's helpful to me? So there's going to be a lot of division and struggle that's going to go on in this trip, but Paul is going to maintain, he's going to continue to do the work that he was called to do. We pick it up here in verse 6, and it says, When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elmias, the magician, for so his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Paul, who was also known, uh, Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him and said, You who are full of deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all unrighteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. Now Paul and his companions put out to sea for Paphos from, and came to Perga, to Pamphylia, but John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Well, uh, so now they have come down to the island of Cyprus. They've sailed across to Cyprus. They've worked their way across, and they've been preaching in the synagogues. They get all the way to the other side of the island of Cyprus. And when they get there, they get to this city called Paphos. And while there, they're going to be preaching the gospel, but they're going to run across uh, a false teacher. Uh, this guy is, he's a magician, uh, but I don't think in the pen and teller type way. He's not a David Copperfield type magician. Uh, I think he was uh, one of two things, either just through deception, using it for religious purposes, or maybe even more so getting into demonic type things. Uh, but so he was, he was uh, doing things that would have drawn attention to him. Uh, but unfortunately, in addition to that, he was a false prophet of the Jews. He wasn't teaching the truth of Judaism. He was just using all of this for himself. He does have a couple of names in here. His real name is actually Bar-Jesus. Whenever you see the word Bar in front of a name, it means son of. But don't get confused. This isn't the son of the Jesus we know. This is another random Jesus. There were actually lots of people. It was like the name John or Joshua. It was a pretty normal name back then, Jesus was. We kind of reserve it now. Uh, in English anyway, uh, but here his name is Bar-Jesus, but he's also known as Elymas the Magician, and so that maybe was his stage name or something along those lines, but uh, anyway, he had cozied himself up to the pro-council of this area by a guy by the name of Sergius Paulus, and so imagine now if you have the leader of your island nation is being indoctrinated, led by a false prophet and potentially demonic magician, that he is one of the advisors. Could you imagine that? That would be so weird, right? Only I start to remember Nancy Reagan had her own medium that hung out with her. Like, you have to be careful with these things, right? There are these false people who try to get themselves as close as possible to the highest levels of leadership. It's one of Satan's tools in order to distract and to draw away. Well, Paul comes in and this leader, Sergius Paulus, wants to hear from Paul, which, uh, by the way, in verse 9, it notes that he was called Saul, but he also was known as Paul. We've talked about this before. His Hebrew name, Saul, 
but in Greek he went by Paul. And now as he's beginning to minister more to Greek people, you're going to see he's going to take on the name Paul instead of Saul because he's ministering to Greeks, not Hebrews. But anyway, Sergius Paulus wants to hear from Paul. And so Paul's going to come in. But as he's talking, this guy is trying to lead the proconsul away from the faith. And so there's this kind of epic battle going on between these two speakers, one the magician and one Paul the apostle who was sent out by the Holy Spirit. And so it says here in verse 9 that Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit and fixed his gaze on him. In other words, we're not debating anymore. This just got serious. Filled with the Holy Spirit, he fixes his gaze on him. And he's got some interesting words. You can tell we're living in a polite society because nobody went, (gasps) When, (laughs) when I read this in verse 10, you who are all full of the you are full of all deceit and fraud you son of the devil you enemy of all righteousness will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the lord paul's serious he's, he's moved into name calling now which doesn't seem like the thing that you would do when you're the apostle paul except he's filled with the holy spirit and the names he's calling him are accurate He was deceitful, he was a fraud, and he was following not Jesus, he was not Bar-Jesus, the son of Jesus, he was Bar-Satan, he was the son of the devil in this case, he was following after Satan, he was an enemy of righteousness, and what he was doing is taking the very clear path of salvation through Jesus Christ, and he was, as he says here, making it crooked. He was making it difficult to find Jesus because of this uh, demonic practices because of the deceit and because of the fraud that was there. Well, interestingly enough, Paul, filled with the Spirit, and so I'm assuming that the Lord told him this, but Paul miraculously, and this sounds weird to say it this way, miraculously blinds him. He makes him blind. He The guy's just been made blind. Usually we think of miracles like he made the blind man see. But in this case, he goes the opposite way. He makes the the guy who has vision blind. Now, why is that interesting when you think of the life of the Apostle Paul? Well, the Apostle Paul was the one who was out there making crooked the way the paths of the Lord. He was persecuting and preaching against Christians. And then he met Jesus, and what did Jesus do? Jesus blinded him. Jesus went to get his attention. And the same thing is being done here for this man, Elimaeus the magician, Bar-Jesus, or really Bar-Satan. He's being blinded in this moment. And it is interesting, he does say uh, in verse 11 that it would be for a time. This doesn't seem like it's a permanent thing, uh, but the idea was in his blindness now, he's looking for somebody to lead him away. He's done with this fight. He's lost. Well, in that moment then, Sergius Paulus goes, wow, I believe. And so now you have the, the Roman consul, the leader the Romans have placed there believing in Jesus Christ on that island. Do you think that's going to have an impact? I think it's going to have an impact. He begins to believe these things. The proconsul believed. Now, he believed when he saw it happen, but that wasn't the thing that amazed him. Look back at your verse there, verse 12. The proconsul believed 
when he saw what happened, but he was amazed at the teaching of the Lord. Now, Paul often talks about this idea that he didn't just come in words only, but he came in words and in power, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's where this real moment is working here, this thing where the, the Holy Spirit says what well, gospel needs to go out. And in this moment, the teaching of the word going together with the power of the Holy Spirit, making change in the heart of Sergius Paulus to turn away from the false prophet to now turn to the Savior Jesus Christ. Now, I have a particular opinion on this, and that is that every time the word of God is preached, the Holy Spirit is present in it, and something miraculous and amazing does happen in the listeners if they're willing to accept it. I really think that. I think every single sermon is at its heart a miracle of God preparing to happen. I just think the Word of God is that powerful and that important. I do want to take just a quick sidebar here in verse 9, though. Uh, it says that Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit, and this is somewhat off topic, but I do think that this is interesting and something that has to be looked at, and we've talked about this a little bit before. Some people will see a passage like that and say, yes, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He has been since the day he was saved, just like all believers are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Other people would say this is a special empowerment of the Holy Spirit, that this is something above and beyond the normal daily expectation of the Holy Spirit. And it's, uh, it's a little bit questionable in Scripture. It's really kind of difficult in general to kind of parse out the difference between those two things. Is it that you're just always full of the Holy Spirit? Or is there something different that's happening here? And this for me is one of those cases where I think it becomes more clear. Um, and here's why I would say that. In verse 9 in the New American Standard Bible, I have a little note, uh, there's a little one next to the word filled by the Holy Spirit. And they've put a center column reference for us here. In verse 9, it tells us something interesting. It says the literal translation of that is having just been filled with the Holy Spirit. That to me is an important phrase. Having just been filled with the Holy Spirit is the literal translation of that. I believe pretty clearly that all believers are indwelt with the Holy Spirit of God, but at specific times, the Spirit of God will empower them for the things that He wants them to do. And you can see it in all different ways as you kind of follow through that phraseology in Scripture. Oftentimes, it's for the purpose of preaching. Well, sometimes there's a vision that's about to occur. Sometimes there's a confrontation as here. But the, the Spirit of God wants something specific done in that moment, and He will fill the servant of God with an extra ability or an extra power in that moment to accomplish His will and His work. And again, a reminder for me, an important reminder for me, that behind it all is the Spirit of God, that it's God working through His people. Now, we're going to contrast that at the end of this chapter in verse 52. In verse 52, it says the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Interesting thing that the, that the translators have done, they've added the word continually, it's not in the Greek. If you look at any other translation of this, they don't have the word continually, it just says the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit, but they've added it here for a reason. It's a different Greek word than the word used earlier in the chapter. 
And so in this case, what the translators are trying to get across is that this is just the standard, we have the Holy Spirit and we have joy, as opposed to, I believe, what was happening in verse 9, this was a moment of power by the Holy Spirit. Now, if you have a different belief on that, I'm okay with that. I'm fine, as long as you understand at the heart of ministry, whether it's your ministry or my ministry or anybody else's ministry, as long as you understand at the heart of that ministry is the Spirit of God. The danger is when you think you're the one with the power. You think you're the one that's the real leader. No, it's all empowered by the Holy Spirit. This is the way we try to do ministry. I think across the church world. I don't think it's exclusive to this church. I think all people in ministry desire that the Holy Spirit would be the one guiding and directing them. But for me in this moment, I think it's an important reminder for us that this was a, a, the Holy Spirit set them apart, sent them out, and empowered them for the ministry that they're doing here. Well, it does tell us that they leave that island. They're going to move on to a new part of the world. We saw that earlier on the map. Uh, John Mark is going to leave at this point. We already talked about the, uh, the responsibilities there, the struggles that are going to be there. But verse 14, but going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out from it. For a period of about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. After these things, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. After he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart. Who will do all my will? From the descendants of this man, according to the promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. And John, after John had proclaimed before his coming, a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And while John was completing his course, he kept saying, What do you suppose that I am? Am I not he? But behold, one is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. So they now have moved their way up to Pisidian Antioch. This is the region of Galilee. You might want to keep that in mind as you're reading the book of Galatians, that it's from these types of ministries, excursions up into that area that the churches began to form. So they get to this area of Pisidia Antioch. Uh, it's the Sabbath day, so it's Saturday. And so Paul did what Paul did. He went first to the synagogues. He, he originally preached primarily to the Jews when he entered into a town, unless there was no synagogue, and then he would find other places where there might be God-fearing people. But he would start there, as we'll find out here, that he would oftentimes get kicked out of there 
And so then he would go to the Jews. And this is kind of the first of those opportunities for him. So he's going to, or he's going to the Gentiles after that. But he starts out at the synagogue. Uh, verse 15 gives us a, a nice little insight into how the synagogues organize themselves. Uh, when they gathered together for their meetings, they had various readings that they would go through. Uh, they would read from the Old Testament history books. And so it says here in verse 15, they were reading of the law. And so that's that first five books of the New Testament. And then it says that they would have a reading from the prophets. And what they would try to do is, is take the reading of the law and the history books, and they would try to match it up with prophecies as they would read through those things. But there was an important piece. Not everybody had the Bible in their hand. It was actually pretty exclusive to a synagogue. And sometimes synagogues didn't even have the whole thing. They just had portions, just certain books, because it was difficult to get these things. It was before the printing press. They couldn't just go download it on their iPhone. It was a much difficult time, right? So they made a pattern within their meetings of reading the Word, and it's why later Paul will say to Timothy, give attention to the public reading of Scripture. This is how it was passed on. It had to be read publicly so people could hear it, because not everybody had a copy. That's also important here because in verse 15, we get this reminder that they had read from the law and the prophets every single Sabbath day. Later on in his sermon that he's about to give to them, he's going to say, you've ignored the prophets that you read every week. And so it's a nice little setup for us. But he's going to, after that reading, be invited up to share a word. And so Paul's going to stand up to preach and what he's going to do here in verse 16 through 25 is give us a very condensed history of the nation of Israel from the time of the Egyptian captivity all the way up to Jesus Christ. And it's super condensed. He starts out, we made, God made a great nation in the land of Egypt in verse 17, right? And then he led them out. And in verse 18, for 40 years, they wandered around in the wilderness. And then in verse 19, he destroys seven nations in the land of Canaan so that they can enter into the promised land. And then there's 450 years that they're in the promised land where he's giving them judges until the final judges, Samuel the prophet. After that, the people asked for a king. You might recall what happened uh, Samuel went to God and he said, God, they've rejected me as their prophet. They've asked for a king. And God says, you don't get it, Samuel. They didn't reject you. I'm their king. They've rejected me. And so God gave them Saul, who Paul was named after, but King Saul as their first king. And then after God removed him out of the way, we jump now to verse 22. Then finally we get King David, who was known as a man after my heart, who will do all of my will. And there's this reminder that David was promised from his descendants would come a savior. So his sermon is this, the history of the nation of Israel leads up to King David, who was promised one of his descendants would be the savior. And then he takes a giant leap forward and says, that savior is Jesus Christ. So he's gone into the Jewish synagogue and he's informed them that the promised Messiah, the promised Savior, the Christ of the Old Testament, that they read about every Sunday, that that has been fulfilled in the person, Jesus Christ, that he is the Savior of the nation of Israel. One interesting thing you can do with this sermon, if you ever get some free time, compare it to Stephen's sermon earlier in the book of Acts. The, stir, the sermon that enraged Paul so much that he gave approval to Stephen being stoned to death. Paul's now totally plagiarizing from that sermon. 
because it was true. It just was true. That was the history of the nation of Israel. And you'll see that that's how they often preached. When they spoke to the nation of Israel, when they spoke to Jewish people, they started with a history lesson to get them up to an understanding or a reminder that there was a promised Messiah. And then the big reveal, Jesus was that Messiah. And then from there on, he's going to take it. Now, it does seem in verse 24 and 25 uh, that they had at least some knowledge of John the Baptist because he spends a little bit of time just pointing out to them that John was not the Messiah. And you might remember that there was a little bit of confusion about that. There were people that were asking him if he was the one, and he would say, no, I'm not the one. I'm not the Messiah. And in fact, later on in the book of Acts, they're going to get to a different city and people there are going to think that they're believers, but they've only been baptized into the baptism of John. And so the teachings of John spread all throughout that area uh, through the Jews that were traveling in and out for these annual feasts. So he's just making this point, and I believe probably because the people of Antioch maybe assumed that John was the Messiah, that even John taught that he wasn't the Messiah, that Jesus was the Messiah. So, We pick up this sermon now in verse 26. Brethren, sons of Abraham's family and those among you who fear God, to us the message of this salvation has been sent. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets which we are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, They asked Pilate that he be executed. When they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers that God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus as it also was written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another Psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through him everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Therefore, take heed so that the things spoken of in the prophets may, come upon, may not come upon you. Behold, you scoffers and marvel and perish, for I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. So he finishes up his sermon now, going on not just speaking about how we got to Jesus, but now showing that Jesus is a fulfillment of the prophecies. And so he tells this very simple gospel message that Christ died for our sins and was buried, And then he resurrected on the third day. It's the same gospel we see throughout the scriptures. When Paul was asked what the gospel was in 1 Corinthians, he says, this is the gospel I received. It's the one I give to you. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and was buried and then raised on the third day and then began appearing to witnesses. And he goes through that same pattern here as he proclaims the gospel to them, making sure to mention that resurrection. But again, letting them know that he was the fulfillment. He was the good news 
of the promise made to the fathers, that he was the fulfillment in verse 33 of that promise. The resurrection of Jesus. He then starts to quote different psalms. He quotes here in verse 33, speaking in the psalms, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Uh, Have you ever wondered why he doesn't tell us the verse reference to those things? Like, wouldn't it be easier rather than saying, as he's going to say it here in a minute, another one of the psalms says this. You ever thought about why he doesn't give you the verse reference to that? Because they didn't exist. That's a modern thing we added to the scriptures so it'd be easier to find them. We put chapters and we put verse references so it'd just be easier to find them. So back then, he literally just had to say, one of the Psalms of David and hope that you knew which one he was talking about. It's just one of the Psalms of David. Well, one of the Psalms of David speaking says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And some people believed that that was Solomon, the son of David. And he's saying, no, the promised son of David is Jesus. He's the promised Messiah. And then he quotes in verse 34 from Isaiah, the Holy One of God. I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. So passing that on now, he's saying that was Jesus that Isaiah was prophesying about. And then he points out the importance of the resurrection in verse 35, as he quotes here from Psalm 16, he says, look, you will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. And for some reason, the Jews believed that the holy one who would not undergo decay was David. And Paul says, David is dead. He's buried. He decayed. He can't be the holy one. But you know who could be the Holy One? Jesus, who, yes, died and buried just like David, but he resurrected from the dead. His body did not undergo decay. He's the fulfillment of all of these Old Testament prophecies. He's bringing it all down so they can understand him. And that's where he he gets into the therefores now. In verses 38 and 39. Therefore, in verse 38... Let it be known to you, and this is like the the pinnacle of his sermon. This is where he was always trying to get to. That through him, speaking of Jesus Christ, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, Jesus Christ, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. This is a huge declaration to the people in the room and to us today, that through Jesus Christ, we have been forgiven, we have been freed from all of our sins. All of that was accomplished through Jesus Christ. And as he says here, it could never have been accomplished through the law. The purpose of the law was never to free us of our sins. It was always to convict us of our sins so that we knew we needed a savior. That was the purpose of the law. But he does this interesting thing here. He begins to use legal terms. It's not as obvious here in the New American, but you'll see it in many other translations. This word freed in verse 39, it's said there twice. In many translations, it's the word justified. It's a legal term. It means you went and you stood before the judge. He examined the evidence and he says, there's no evidence to convict you. So what he's saying here in this passage, because of the work of Jesus Christ, we've been forgiven of our sins, so forgiven of our sins that when we stand before God for judgment, there won't be enough evidence to convict us of sin, and we will be set free. Now now put that into your life. Through him, Jesus Christ, everyone who believes... Do you believe in Jesus Christ? 
That's a question. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Well, everyone who believes in Jesus Christ is free from all things. You are justified. Your sins are forgiven. And it's still a struggle for a lot of people to, to, to wrap their brains around that. They, they look at the long list of things that they've done wrong in their life. And they just can't believe. And they still live in guilt. And they still live in shame. I'm telling you, if you're struggling with that, memorize this verse. And put, the, put your name in there if you have to. Forgiveness of sins has been proclaimed to Sean. And through Jesus Christ, Sean who believes is free from all things. And put your name in there. Put your name in there. Read it back to yourself and remind yourself every time Satan wants to come in and convict you. No, I've been made free. I've been justified. The easy way we remember the word justified, by the way, is it's just as if I'd never sinned. That's the work that Jesus did for us. But wait, I did sin. I know. But he paid the price. It's already paid. He paid the penalty. He paid your fine. If you got a speeding ticket and you showed up to pay for it, and the judge says, well, somebody's already paid that. Well, I'd like to pay it myself. You can't. It's already been paid. But it's my fine. I don't care. It's already been paid. We don't have an accounting for that. There's no way to put that into the system. The fine has already been paid. You're justified. You've been freed by the power of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel he preaches to them. But he gives them just a little bit of a warning here at the end. In verse 40, Take heed so that the things spoken of in the prophets may not come upon you. You see, there's some who are going to scoff. They're going to think it's a, minist- a mystery. And those people are going to perish. Because while God's accomplishing work all around them, they're never going to believe. There's just some people who will never believe. They just can't believe it. That's amazing. It's marvelous. That's a cool thought. It's a great idea. I just don't believe it. Paul says, be careful. Don't be unbelieving. Because those who are unbelieving will perish. They will have to pay the penalty for their own sin. Well, it might seem weird to you that Paul could preach a sermon in about three minutes, but I'm telling you, those are just Luke's notes from the sermon. I'm sure it went on much longer than that. Verse 42, at one point, Paul's going to be accused of killing people with his long sermons, just so you know. He's going to preach through the night. Some guy's going to fall out a window. He's going to have to raise him from the dead. Like, Verse 42, as Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. Now, when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, were urging them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, 
since you repudiated and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed into eternal life, believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. But the Jews incited devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust of their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Okay, Paul finishes his sermon. He walks out of the synagogue, and all the Jews are surrounding him like a conquering hero. Best sermon ever! You gotta come back next week and preach for us, Paul. We can't wait to hear you again. Paul's like, I'm on it, I'll be back. Well, he comes back the next week to preach. But now the whole city wants to hear him preach. And the Jews, it says they get jealous. Could you imagine being jealous that other people could receive the forgiveness of sins? What was Paul's closing thought in the sermon? Take heed that you not believe perish. And all it took was a little bit of jealousy for them to walk away from their faith. I'm sure the story is true in a lot of churches, but we've had people leave our church because there's sinful people that come here. (laughs) Who were you before you became a Christian? (laughs) Can you just be as patient with them as God was with you? Let them hear the word. They weren't just jealous. They weren't just contradicting the things that Paul spoke. They were going so far as blaspheming, which means they begin speaking against the truth of God. So Paul and Barnabas begin to boldly say to them, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, but since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we're turning to the Gentiles. And this is going to be a big change in the ministry of the Apostle Paul, but also in the work of the Holy Spirit. Going first to the Jews, but it's also for the Gentiles. And for some Jews, they would be unwilling to accept that. Others are going to just join up. They're going to say, sign me up. We'll get saved. The Gentiles get saved. Let's all get saved. Best day ever, right? For some of them, they just couldn't handle it. But it's going to allow the gospel to do exactly what it said at the beginning of this book. To spread from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, the half-bred Jews, to the ends of the earth, Cheyenne, Wyoming comes all the way to us. The gospel spreads under the work and the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, when the Gentiles heard this, that salvation, as it says in Isaiah 42, 6, that that salvation was for the earth, it was for everybody. 
I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth in verse 47, a quote out of the prophet Isaiah. The Gentiles start to throw a party. Yes, we made the team. We're in. We're forgiven of our sins. We've been justified and we've been made free. Christ died for us as well. The Jews got really upset about this. So they started a persecution against Paul. He knows how that works because he used to be the persecutor. They drive them out of their district. And so they're going to do exactly what Jesus told them to do. And in the, the gospel of Matthew, he said, when you go to a city, if they don't accept you, shake the dust off your feet and go someplace else. Super practical, by the way. How do I know where I'm supposed to preach? Well, you preach everywhere, but you stay where they receive it. When they say they don't want to hear it, say okay. But remember, as he says here for these Gentiles, or for these Jews, they are judging themselves unworthy of eternal life. That's a decision that they made. But he shook off the feet, and he went to a different city. Now, I do want to say this. There have been some great missionaries who have gone places where the word was not received. And they stayed and they preached and they preached and they tilled up the ground and they did the hard work. And eventually, as they prayed to God, as they sought God, that work begins to be blessed. So I'm not saying it's always easy, but I'm saying it's a pretty practical thing. If you've preached the gospel someplace and they tell you to go away, it's okay. You've preached the word, it's okay to go away. There's no sin in that. That's the instructions that Jesus gave. But in the end, we get another one of these summaries. The disciples were just continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. It's a powerful statement. Joy to hear that they've been freed from their sins and they continue on in that joy. And if you're struggling with joy, maybe remind yourself of the basics of the gospel. Because there's true joy in that for us. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we've gone a long way in a few, few minutes. And uh, so thankful for the patience of each and every listener. Father, my prayer today would be that as a ministry, we would always seek to be set apart, sent out, called and empowered by you. Father, my prayer would be that we as believers would recognize that we have been freed from our sins and that we would rejoice in those things. Father, if there are any here who are unbelieving, I pray that your spirit would change their heart today, that they wouldn't judge themselves unworthy of eternal life they would recognize that the gospel is for everyone, everywhere to be saved. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.